my definition of freedom was uh, only through Jesus Christ and the work of the Savior. But now my definition of freedom is is to be able to do just what you said, to pursue science and to pursue your spirituality, and the twain shall not ever you know interfere with each other. They can uh, they they can follow the same path, and uh, so. When I, when I could have intellectual freedom and spiritual freedom and those two could be on the same train and on the same track, that's when I, that's when I was able to reinterpret Jesus. I was able to, and, and now I, I can honestly say my mind and my, my spiritual side is, is free. And right. the freedom that I once preached was, was no less than a trap. Mike and I met a few years ago, I guess probably around five years ago now, and I feel like just kind of immediately recognized each other. We both grew up as river rats running up and down the Pearl River in a beautiful area of Louisiana called the Honey Island Swamp, living that real swamp life, catching catfish, exploring, and just enjoying the beautiful freedom of Louisiana nature. And Mike, I got to give it to you, dude. You are definitely one of the most interesting people that I know. You've been all over the world and have a really unique body of life experiences that's given you a really wide lens of viewership of the human experience. And the insights that you've gathered along the way have clearly also shaped you into being one of the kindest people that I know with a huge heart and a genuine desire to help people and serve the collective you and I have now sat in numerous ceremonies together and explored the cosmic consciousness. And here we are sitting down for a bit to dig into your really interesting story of becoming and unbecoming a Christian pastor, the deconstruction and the evolution of those belief systems and what comes along with that. And before we get started, I'm going to make a quick disclaimer. We are not denigrating Christianity or religion whatsoever in this conversation. Um, clearly, for some people, organized religions are the perfect path to coming to know the self and feeling connected to God. And for others, they're not. And personally, one of my only deep qualms is when a religion claims to be the only way or the right way, especially with eternal consequences, if you question that, because, and honestly, whether or not this is even intentional or not doesn't matter, but because that leverages the deepest possible fear to control and manipulate people into not even attempting to use logic or discernment. In other words, to be scared of even seeking truth outside of what's typically a single doctrine. Uh, you know, obviously, many religions seem to point towards various aspects of truth. But my personal opinion is that no single religion or framework can package the entire truth. And that syncretism, which is kind of the compositing of multiple religions or belief systems into one combined worldview is a good thing. And for some people, possibly a necessary approach to seeking and forming an understanding and connection with God, not an approach that should be punished. I mean, for thousands of years now, people have literally been killing each other over these belief sets. 
many of which overlap and tell the same stories, essentially, but we're taught to ignore these parallels at all costs. So anyway, that's my disclaimer. This conversation is about Mike's personal journey and is obviously not intended to be a shot at any particular belief system. So we're going to move on. Mike, man. Hey. Glad to sit down with you, dude. I feel like it's been a while. Yeah, you yeah. as well. Yeah, it's Mardi Gras yeah. down here in uh in the New Orleans area. So uh man, I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. You all right? I'm 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 fantastic. I'm I'm I'm, I'm having a lot of fun in my old age. <laughs> I, really I know am. you are, man. I know uh, you are. So before we like kind of dive into your story, I guess the first place to start is before you went to Bible school. I know you left home at 13. Uh, I'd like to yeah. start there and to just kind of see how you originally got involved with Christianity. I don't know whether or not you were or your family was Christian before you personally found Christianity. And then yeah, so I guess let's, let's kind of yeah. let's yeah. go over that. And then and then what led you to Bible school initially? And we'll take it from there. My and my story is 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 the exact preface of, of, of entering uh, Christianity and fundamentalism, because without the without the 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 preface, that part, I, I, I never enter Christianity. So uh, even prior to 13, prior to moving out, there was there was an impetus, a, a reason for wanting to move out. Um, so the saddest part of the story was, and both and all the people involved in this story are now deceased. So there was such a there was such chaos and such. Um, um, the family was in such a mess that I remember when I was very young, I was six or seven years old, my, uh, and this is, this is a very, it's, it's a very graphic story in, in some way, but it, it's, it's very important to, to understand my background. My sister was a very young girl. She was 14 years old and she was raped by a, by a, a family member by marriage. And the, uh, back then those, the, the district attorney did not prosecute. So you had to press charges or not. And so my father, who I learned later was not my father, actually, in lieu of pressing charges against the perpetrator, just asked that his 67 Galaxy 500 be paid off. And he sold my sister's soul down the river for, for the payoff on, a, on an automobile. So out of that came my moving to the river where you and I have that, <clears throat> that common background. Uh, and I moved in with actually the ex-husband of the sister that was raped at 14, well after they were, they were divorced. So, um, and he was legally um, crazy, um, um, post-traumatic things from Vietnam. And, and, but my parents actually gave permission for me to move in with this gentleman and, um, and, from that, there it, it just got crazy. It became kind of like Tom Sawyer meets um, a, a train wreck. I, it was uh, my every everything from that point on became very unpredictable and very unstable. It was punctuated with a whole lot of fun. I'm not saying that it was all bad. But we we had many adventures, um, but there was no stability. It was uh, it, it was beyond being free ranged. It was it was walking the edge of things always on the edge so from that um came um i guess i I just wanted i needed stability finally in my life and so i dropped out of high school 
finally got my GED and went on to college, uh, and, and that being Bible college. That was this was so this being after my conversion. Um, but that, that's that's the short story of of, of how I of, of why I entered into Christianity because for the first time in my life I met people that that I could say were half-assed normal. You know, they they had they had like families and they had. Uh, they had an order in how they did things. They 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 went to work. They came home. They they slept at night. They they and it was uninterrupted, and there wasn't crazy parties. And 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 I found that even at a young age, I found that quite attractive because it was such the antithesis of everything. And I think I just wanted off the train. Yeah. Right. So you were you know feeling like your upbringing was just unstable in all the ways that you were saying and. You finally met some people you felt like kind of embodied the notion of stability, and that's kind of what attracted you initially, correct? And there was kindness and gentleness, and there were there were there were, there were lots of things that that uh, you know I can say that Christianity was it was the best bridge that I could possibly, um, in as much as that it was it was the pendulum swinging the other way. But I don't know that they're coming from the, the craziness. I don't know that there was there was a midpoint. I think I had to, right. I had to just get away. Um, and, and so, and it, it was, it was, it was rather sudden. It, it, it was a very fast turn, my conversion. And how old were you um, for that? I was 17 at that point. Yeah. Okay. So then, a lot happened between 13 and 17. <laughs> right. And then, so is in, I believe you said 1983 that you started Bible school and that's when you decided that you wanted to become a pastor, correct? Yes. I get whatever, um, whatever a calling is. And I don't know, I, I it's, um, but, but it sure was a, uh, a, des- a desire to think to, to help people. And I'm sure that was, that was re- reactionary in and of itself. Also, I'm, I'm sure that was part of it, but, uh, I haven't really thought that through. Right. As but, far as, yeah. As far as Bible school itself, it's kind of like a mysterious thing to me. You want to tell us a little bit about kind of how that goes down, what it's like. I'm also curious to hear, how do I say, I guess kind of how the teachings are struggled, uh, I mean, are are, uh, told to be retaught. Like, are you allowed to form your own interpretation of the scripture or are you taught to teach in a certain way, like this is what this means. This is how this translates, and yeah. this is how you know we want you to bring it to the masses within limits. So, so you do have. I'm not going to say that they, uh, you know, that I was spoon fed every single, uh, every single truth. I've, I'm not saying that I couldn't modify or, or, or use my own critical thinking skills, uh, but uh, but it was a it was a fairly narrow path. So narrow, um, I remember that I was doing a research paper, and this involved uh, the topic of origins, uh, you know, our, our uh, creationism versus evolution. And I was having to do a research paper, and as part of the research, I, I, I was going to research some Darwin thought. Darwin, so I, I checked out the evolution of species from um, from the library and uh, from the public library, brought it home and started reading it. and. Donnie, I was so um, threatened by this book, and I, I, I can't even say that I believed any of its contents because I had been taught to believe in a, a very young earth creationism. But I was so threatened by it that I threw the book on the floor of my apartment 
And I, and by the time I turned it in, it was already late because I didn't even want to touch the book. I was, because I, I, I was afraid that I didn't want to do anything that would upset what I had. By that time I, I had a young wife, I was married and I knew that I was hanging by a thread. I knew that there was, you know, I, the chaos, no matter how far I walked away, I knew if I turned around, it was right there because if, without Christianity, I had nowhere to go. Uh, you know, it, it, it was my life. So yeah, it, it foreign thoughts or, or, you know, too much thinking was threatening. For sure. Right. And so yeah. tell us a little bit about how Bible school, like when you start that, what, what does it kind of entail? Like it's, it's, you know, pretty much a, a regular kind of college experience, obviously not regular per se, but is that kind of, it's a curriculum that's laid out and you're training to become a pastor by studying scripture and writing and all that kind of stuff. Structurally, it's the same. Um, there are some other, you know, coursework that you can do. Like we did, I did a, I did some coursework in, uh, uh, in uh, death counseling and things like that, you know, doing, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of like hospice work um, in, in, in a religious version. So I got to do a lot of verbatims and interviews with people that were dying. That was an interesting course. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from that. But yeah, it was just a lot of rote memory of scripture and uh, and it, it quite dry, really. There, there really uh, there was nothing thrilling about the classes. Uh, but, but other than that, you had you had your social life, you had your commons building, and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, much like, but but it was just a smaller, uh, you know, like two, like maybe eight hundred students, maybe at that school at the time. Right. I'm curious. Just like side question, kind of if any part of the curriculum entails any kind of like study of human psychology or like concepts that would align with like neurolinguistic programming and stuff like that. Like, is there, are we, are y'all, are they teaching like ways to really get through to people through in sermon and whatnot? Absolutely not. No, there, there was nothing. Okay. Um, no, every, everything was, um, the psychology was in the scripture. So there was nothing, uh, no, that, that, that was a gray area, but that would have been, I, I, I didn't see that. No. Right. That makes sense. Psychology so, course. so kind of, as you said, like just kind of cut and dry educational experience, learning the scripture, studying the scripture. And then you, after that, I'm assuming you like graduated. Yeah. Like you, you actually, no, I didn't. I, no, I didn't even graduate from there. I, I, I went five years. So I, I but I, I changed majors and things and children started coming along. I, as I said, I, I was married at a young age uh, because, you know, back in, you know, of course, when being in that in, in Christianity, if you are going to have sex, you have to get married. So so, you know, that it drives a lot of very uh, it's, I guess we'll call them premature marriages. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, the courting uh, period is uh, out of out of guilt and <laughs> right. a distrust for what you may do. You uh, you get married quickly and. <clears throat> Yeah, that makes sense. A lot so, of young brides at Bible college. <laughs> right, right, right. So at this point in your life, I'm assuming you're kind of like young 20s-ish or mid-20s? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I was, at that point, I was actually 18, 19. I was young. Oh, wow, I, okay. I, I went to college actually before I was supposed to graduate from high school. I started like a oh, semester gotcha. early because okay. I, I got my GED and 
So at this point in your in your path, like Christianity is the lens that you firmly saw the world through. The only lens. And right. it and it was all encompassing. It was there there was everything ran through that filter. Right, right. Which is how the lens of belief works and colors our perceptions and how yes. how every every aspect of our perception is colored by by these types of beliefs. It's I find it to be so interesting, all the new research coming out about beliefs affecting epigenetic expression, et cetera, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I want to hear more first about your experience being a pastor. So after you finished, you became a pastor for five years, yeah? Yes. And and it and it worked well um with with younger people because it, it, we had a very uh we had a very open church in the sense that there was a lot of communication and there was even even like during the service there were there was there was some um uh, sort of indigenous kind of an organic experience even in that where uh there was even group participation oftentimes we we tried everything we could to keep uh to keep an open church model and it was a little off the beaten path uh, because I, there's nothing about me that's ever been able to be conventional. It's it's uh, uh, in, in in anything I did there or now. I've always uh, when I started pastoring, I, I I bucked convention, and then eventually I had to step down because there there was just too much uh, from the uh, the church denominational structure. There was too much pushback for the changes we were making. And, uh, and and so after five years, I said, "Look, guys, you can have it." And I, but I stayed around until they found a new pastor, and I also continued in church leadership um, until eventually, after about I'm going to say about nine years of marriage, and you know, and, and there was a I, I, I noticed that I was beginning to hold back water. You can imagine a dam, and I noticed that it was filling up behind the dam. <laughs> And it became, um, and it was just like as quickly as I changed from heathenism, if you want to call it that, to Christianity, the dam broke and then all was awash. And, uh, but, but I held back for a long time for 16 years of marriage, 17 years of marriage. So for eight or nine years, it was piling up and piling up. And I kept denying Mm -hmm. that the fundamental changes that I knew were taking place, the questions I was asking, I was just, just squashing them, trying to, trying to not let them, I, I didn't want them to show up on the, the phenotype, you know, it's okay on the genotype, right. but I didn't want it to show. Yeah. Right. So at what, at what point in, in what ways did you, I guess, begin questioning the faith or the practice or whatever we want to call it? Well, in which way did I did I stop? No, in which way did you begin questioning your faith? Oh, oh okay. Uh, oh, it was, um, uh, it was, it was. Gosh, it was, it was through everything. It was through uh, what I was teaching. Uh, I really didn't believe. I, 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 the, the Donnie was the the big one. Was just the prayer of faith. No one that I ever prayed for got healed. No one that I ever prayed or nothing, nothing ever happened as an answer to prayer that could not be explained by general odds of outcome. Mm. And, and after a while that, that, that weighs on you. And then, uh, you know, my marriage, um, was, I just began, I, I was no longer in love with the woman that I was married to. And I was, uh, and I couldn't pray that back either. And, uh, the, um, 
I was no longer so enamored with the church that I couldn't see its flaws. That was another big one. And I couldn't see uh, within the leadership and the finances and things that, that, you know, this is, this isn't, this isn't working for me. And I became a little more, I guess, vocal about, you know, what I said and what I, and what I saw. And, and yeah. And, and so that, that in many other ways, yeah. Right. And just to get clear, because I don't think we answered this yet, what denomination or sect of Christianity were you practicing in? Well, I, I was pastoring in a group called the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana. What did they, they're, they're Wesleyan Methodists in doctrine. So they were mainline. They, were, they had a little more holiness con- context to them, but not Pentecostal. We were not, not Pentecostal. Uh, I'm going to use the word holiness that generally— uh, infers that that you were Pentecostal, but we were not. So I I, I called us warmed over Methodists. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not like super familiar with all of the different denominations. Did could you explain, I guess, and we don't have to go off for a while on this, but just kind of like the overarching principle like of that denomination's belief in the Bible. Like are y'all using the KJV? Do y'all study the Old Testament as well? Like how does and then like do y'all view in that sect or does that sect view the Bible to be, you know, fable and allegory and metaphor? Or does it view it to be a historical document in its entirety, et cetera? Yeah. In that each church has its own, uh, <laughs> its own. Yeah. That, that's where, that's where Christianity gets. And that's where I've another reason why I wanted to leave. Um, we, we took a pretty conservative approach and we took a more of a literal history. There were things that maybe we didn't literally take. Uh, again, it was all just kind of, uh, uh, subjective. Uh, but, but did we believe in Noah's Ark? Yes, we believed in that. Did we believe that Jonah was swallowed by the whale? Yes. Um, and these are the things that eventually I, I, my intellect could just no longer, um, I couldn't put my put, put couldn't put my mind around them. I guess, uh, but yeah, fair. We were conservative, and and yeah. right. There's this um, <clears throat> there's this interesting study that I read in this journal called Religion, Brain, and Behavior that takes sacred texts and it compares them to the genome, and it takes the interpretations of those texts <clears throat> and compares them to epigenetic expression of that genome specifically like the different interpretations of the text between different denominations showing how like functionally those two things are analogous to one another DNA being the text itself and the altered epigenetic expression being the result of individualized interpretations of the text text first by the pastor and then by the the, you know the people who are being preached to and it's an interesting comparison because over time as we've seen with numerous religious texts, including the Bible, the actual DNA or the text itself kind of evolves as seen in the changes made to the Bible over time, the content being reduced overall, et cetera. And also the way that it induces behavioral changes evolves as the interpretations change and adapt to the time. So this study kind of looked at Christian denominations that hold opposing beliefs, but use the same text and it looked mm-hmm. at like how deeply colored a belief set can be or become by mm-hmm. the passages or the citations chosen along with the interpretation yeah. that a pastor utilizes to teach the church. So 
to continue the DNA analogy, what they see is that you basically end up, as you were saying a second ago, with different expressed phenotypes of the same religion. And uh, Mm -hmm. one example I found interesting is that they ran the text of various sermons of one particular verse of the Bible. I think it was John 3.16 through a word analysis program. And it showed that conservative pastors use words that have like an anger connotation a lot more often than progressive pastors. So it was kind of like interesting to me how these ideas can evolve and shape the overall perspectives and behaviors of the members of the church in sometimes completely opposite ways, utilizing the same base text. That was like, I found that super interesting. When I was leaving this, was exactly what you were saying. Now you said it very eloquently, but I, but I, I saw the Bible as a as as a book that was written in a culture by a culture, and has been taught and 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 interpreted through changing cultures. And this is where Christianity loses their shit. They they lose their shit because they do not they 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 extricate um, the scripture out of a time and space that they that is convenient for them that that, that applies best to their culture in African American churches in, in in the United States uh their teachings are very much different um in in uh churches that 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 border catholicism more so uh are very different than southern baptists and and but but when we forget that that the bible was a was a book that was written in a culture and we try to pull those truths and those um, those things forward it's a real clumsy fit and to say it best and you re- you're really forcing a square peg into a round hole um and that yeah. it's that, that was another one of my undoing scenarios that, you know, yeah right but yeah like yeah. you said it, it it makes sense yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess whenever you personally became to or came to the point where you began questioning your faith, obviously, because of the way that these things are organized, and just because of the precise manner in which they're embedded into our culture from such a young age, and just because of the orthodox organization itself, you, as you said, have to withhold your doubt and feel like you have to hold that in and not be able to openly express to anybody. So how how long were you kind of in that state? And then how did you go about moving on and choosing to walk a different path? And whether you, you know, as long as I could hold in the guilt, (laughs) right? that's that's about how, how long it was. And uh, because any, any departure from, um, from the most conservative interpretation of scripture uh, will make you feel guilty because you all of a sudden you feel like you're upsetting God, you're upsetting the denomination, you're upsetting your uh, change. Change is not, um, it's not, I'm not saying it's not tolerated, but I'm saying it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult path to take. Uh, you no know, shame and guilt are kind of built into the system. Right. We don't talk about that very much uh, because we, we, you know, Jesus is the uh, apparently the all-encompassing savior, and the and and you know he re- relieves and takes away the guilt and the shame. But there's still guilt and shame built into the system. 
uh, in, in, into the, the denominational structure. Uh, and, and we failed to notice that. And so I, I, I held on to as long as I could. And eventually I said, you know what, I'm, I, I just, I'm, 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 and that's when the dam broke. Yeah. Right. And then, so at that point you just, how did that kind of process go for you? And what was the, you know, oh, gosh. The- it, it was terrible. I, I left a wife and four children. <laughs> it was, it was, uh-huh. I, I literally left a wife and four children. I, because they, they were, they were going to stay in the system or in, in the group. And I didn't leave my office as father. I continued to be the father of my children. I didn't leave the office, but I sure left the, uh, the, the, the premises. And, uh, but I did abdicate my position as husband and, uh, and never returned to it. Uh, so it, it was, it was, uh, it was a mess, you know, in, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, it was amicable with my wife and we were very adult in how we, uh, and we didn't, you know, we, we said nice things to each other in front of the children. And we, uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you sometimes divorce is what needs to happen. We just need to do it as adults. And, um, and I give, um, commendation to my first wife because she, she, she is very adult. She's a very, she's a very fine woman. And, um, and we're friends still to this day. And, but that's, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. I right. walked away with just my business and left everything else behind. But but yeah, let, let me. So while we're on the subject of marriage, let me let me let me talk about the the second marriage. So there were there were there were two, and uh, the the two became three. But I, so my second marriage uh, was uh, it was born and still in the context of Christianity, but it could not be sustained in the context of Christianity. I had a very passionate, wonderful marriage for two and a half years with these with these interruptions of, um, so when a, some women can grow up in the, in, in, in such a way in their, the way they were raised in their family, that shame becomes their, um, it becomes very easy to carry shame and to, uh, uh, and my wife, my second wife, the whole church was still praying that I would return to the wife of my youth. And, and, and the, no, they wouldn't let go. They wouldn't let go. They just kept pulling from the grave and praying. And, and, and so as long as we were within the church, people would drop lines to say, and say, you know, we're still praying that he returns to his wife and all this stuff. And, and she eventually just couldn't handle it. She just, she said, you know what, you, your, your kids need you more than I need a husband. And I, I can't do this anymore. I can't bear up. Fast forward 17 years later, we're married again. But five years ago, we met and we found out, I didn't know that she had been down this pathway of mysticism and studying the perennial truths and uh, the, um, uh, but became very open-minded about spiritual things because we never talked about spiritual things. We we maintained a friendship, but it was we never talked about spiritual things. And so now... I've had the best five years of my life, Donnie, and I say that without any qualification, literally the best five years of my life, the best marriage I've had to a wonderful, wonderful lady with full capacity to be a wonderful wife, all because we are not in the confines of Christianity. And when I say that, it blows the minds of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. They, they, they cannot wrap their head around it. 
And it's absolutely true. Uh, so again, it's, it's that migration from shame-based religion. And my wife right. just couldn't handle that part. Yeah. Totally. And so once you left, where like where did you kind of go from there immediately? In other words, were you kind of looking actively for a new construct or way to frame reality? Or were you just kind of just being and, and letting whatever sought you out find you? I know you did a lot of international traveling and exploring other cultures, which I'm sure played a huge role. I'd like to hear a little bit about that and just kind of what your first step was as far as if this framework that you carried with you for this long, you fell out of resonance with entirely to the point where you wanted to start something new for your own soul's well-being it's like were you looking for something else or did you just surrender to the flow of life and kind of see where it takes you well, i'll tell you there were two important things and um one of them you're you're not gonna you're gonna you're gonna be like what i mean how does that even remotely connect it um i had a i had a friend of mine um that uh had been married three children four children and uh, one day he came out of the closet as a gay man. And when I, he took me to the side, I guess, you know, knowing that I'd been a pastor, I guess he, he thought maybe because I was his first non-family member. Matter of fact, even before his dad and mom knew, I knew. Uh, invited me over for dinner one night, but he had to get it off his chest. And the words that he used to explain his, you know, his, departure from being a married man with three three or four children to becoming a gay man it was the same semantics the same words that i used coming out of christianity uh it was um i understood that 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 the the stresses were the same it's a complete departure from everything that you've been everything that you've done your your whole persona for all of your life and you're entering into something that is just the, the complete antithesis of all of that. The stresses are tremendous, and 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 I felt, um, and and then I also learned through that that uh, uh, that being uh, well, there were ethical things that that opened my mind too about you know being accepting and loving of of the gay community, and and that became sort of a um, uh, something became near and dear to my heart was, uh, and all the time this was also developing in Sandra's life too, a relationship and a, 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 a real tenderness toward uh, the gay community. Cause I think she was feeling the same thing. I was, she had come out also at, uh, at uh, come out of Christianity. I think she felt very much the same way. Uh, and then, and then the other thing was travel because I, I, there are innate prejudices that uh, being a, uh, a, a white male from Monroe, Louisiana. Um, and I make the joke that I think I lived in every trailer park in North Louisiana. Uh, but I was, I was born of a culture and it, this culture did not, did not allow um, Arabs or, or people of, uh, of from Middle Eastern people. Uh, we, I, I was kind of, I kind of had a little timidness about it. And, and I thought I was a pretty open-minded guy, but, I finally went to the Middle East, and that was um, was mind blowing. I I felt at home, and I'll tell you this story, Donnie. So I did my DNA, and uh, most people, uh, Caucasian people in America, have less than one percent Sub-Saharan African in their DNA. I do not. I had 
through my travels in the Middle East, I developed a fetish for Pakistani music and Middle Eastern music. I don't speak a word of, of Arabic, but felt at home in the Middle East, loved the music. Guess where less than 1% of my DNA is from? Uh, it's, it's from Pakistan. Nice. So, <laughs> and I found that out after I had a fetish for the music. So this, it had made no contribution uh, to my choices. Uh, and we talk, we have talked many times about the possibility that the 90% of DNA that is not used for protein construction and, you know, for use of the body could store memories, especially artistic and traumatic ones. Mm -hmm. And so I do not doubt that there's, there's memories stored on my DNA. Um, and so traveling opened up all of that. That was the segue. Um, and it was a process, you know, it was, it was layered. I think travel was probably the final peg in that, though. Uh, mm. It really opened my mind up, and and and, and part of that the, that was Donnie was. I, I I saw I met these these young men um, in uh, Oman. I got I got fairly close to a couple of the guys there that in the, in the public places and things, and I, and the, the thought occurred to me: it's like, man, these guys are they're not going to hear about Jesus, and uh, they're. Their, their fate, if I believe what I used to believe, which I, by that time I no longer did. But I, their fate is sealed. Their eternity is going to be far different than, than the lucky Americans that get to hear uh, the gospel. And so they're, they're, they're damned to hell. And all I saw was beautiful people with beautiful eyes, and they were kind, and they were hospitable. And I uh, said, so, no, that's, that's not the God I serve or uh, God I right. want to be part of. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. That's one of the just the wildest aspects of organized religion to me is the the uh, the factor of there's us and there's other and there's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. What we know to be true, we know it to be true. It's not an opinion. We believe we have faith and therefore we're going to have a spot in eternal paradise. And anybody who does not, this is the part that fucks me up. Anybody who does not believe this thing is mm -hmm. their souls will eternally suffer in a hellfire or whatever other comparison yeah. any other cultural lens uses. And obviously, it's not just Christianity that carries this form of fear-inducing oh. programming and belief of consequence without faith, right? And like I was saying on a, a previous episode I did with Jim McCarty of the law of one is that the law of one material describes faith in an entirely different way and makes the the specific annotation that faith should not be equated with believing something without proof whatsoever. And I said this before, but rather that it's an attitude that all is well and all will be well and all is happening as it should, which fundamentally is no different than a Christian saying, well, you know, we trust in God's plan. It's the same thing, but there's an added caveat with the organizational structure to add the fear of eternal consequences that totally transforms a thing into something that it doesn't have to be. So I, I see what you're saying. And because I've, I've never like fully, I was, I was born into a Catholic family, but I never like fully embodied that or resonated with it. So I can't, I can't like, I guess 
I don't have the experience of looking at somebody and and feeling that way. So you're saying that when you were within that belief structure, that when you saw these people prior to to all of this, that that that's how you would have felt about witnessing yeah, people. Yeah, from yeah, these yeah they were going cultures. to hell, and 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 it even it even came back on 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 me as a pastor because you know there was this thing that we were taught in Bible school if we don't get out and and share the word, then their blood is kind of on our hands. Now they didn't literally say that. But if we don't go out and share the gospel, then 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 we're 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 the vehicle for them going to hell, and uh, and then you felt guilty for not out there knocking on doors and and you know passing out religious tracts and things. It was it it, it was a shit show. <laughs> it really was. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. On the on the topic of the word, I'm gonna go on a little rant here because you brought up DNA and the word the. The the word of the Bible is originally a translation of the Greek logos, which is another term that's used frequently throughout the law of one, which mm-hmm. in that context is translated to roughly like that which gives form by separation from the ocean of being. So like that thing, as from the context of the law of one, like that thing that takes the oceanic kind of God consciousness of everything and nothing and and collapses it into form and creation and stuff. And what I find interesting in a a comparison that I've drawn numerous times and probably won't stop is DNA also making us into the word of God, you know, as what you were referring to is what we so fancifully call junk DNA, which is the large Mm -hmm. portion of DNA that's not 3d printing us into being but that small fraction of dna that does code for proteins is constantly building us piece by piece using a system of code that's not very different from a language right and so dna codes for 20 amino acids there's actually basically 22 characters because you have what's called a start code on which is kind of like the capital letter at the beginning of a sentence and then you have what's called a stop code on which is kind of like a period so even though there's 20 amino acids there's essentially 22 letters which interestingly enough correspond with the 22 letters of the hebrew alphabet so you have amino acids as letters which are strung into long strings of amino acids that we call peptides which are like words which are strung into strings of peptides which we call polypeptides which are like paragraphs and then those paragraphs get arranged and folded into a 3D shape that's essentially literally functional geometry that we call Mm -hmm. a protein. So like from that perspective, and by the way, the protein, the shape of the protein is literally living geometry is what defines and determines its function and what it does. So our DNA acts just like a language in that sense that literally speaks us into being and that's just the portion of dna that's coding for protein i believe it's 98.6 percent that does not code for proteins that we again just call junk because we don't yet understand it uh, i always tend to reference uh jeremy narby's book the cosmic serpent as a reflection of what you were saying regarding junk dna or non-coding dna as holding stories and memories and generational traumas and things of that nature I, every bone in my body wholeheartedly believes that to be true because of my own experiences repeated experiences with ayahuasca and then which were then further fortified by the information in that book 
And it goes into extreme detail about how this could be possible, about how these memories are passed down, particularly maternally, how you inherit unchanged versions of this DNA from your mother, um, and about holding memories, everything, even down to how when you recall a memory, the DNA within your neurons is activated and synthesizes new proteins and then will break them down when you're done recalling that memory, which is crazy. And considering that proteins are geometry, that opens mm -hmm. up some other questions about like the geometry that seems to be associated with memories, emotions, feelings, or like circumstances or whatever, whenever you're deep in a psychedelic experience and how it's not just it's not just a, a meaningless visual pattern, right? They're like attached to these, to this meaning that's difficult to describe. But anyway, I wanted to, because that's such a big word in Christianity, the word, it started with the word yeah. from your context of Christianity. What did the word mean? Um, I don't know that, that I, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the old Testament, but the word, uh, the Bible, be if we if we take a, if we call that the word, um, that was uh, that was certainly my guidebook and my in in the center of what you know of what I was supposed to be teaching and learning. Um, the word, uh, I guess, from 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 the standpoint of like um, God, I guess the spoken being the being spoken into existence, everything that we see, it, it kind of re refers to like a the, the literal creation by God, by this otherness, by this entity that spoke things into existence, um, and that was yeah. Back when I believed that God was. You know, I reference him in my brain as this Zeus-like figure, you know, white-haired god in the sky. That you know, and when he spoke, things happen. So that's that's, a, that's the only thing I have about you know, logos and the word is is uh, just those memories, yeah, and those things, yeah. those those things we taught and believed. I was, I was just curious because I find, I find like the Genesis part, like and like the first couple of aspects of Genesis in the Bible, like so fascinating, because like, like you were saying earlier, when we're dealing with a script that's been taught through all these different cultural lenses, it was written through a different cultural lens. What's really fascinating mm -hmm. is that oftentimes the languages simply are not compatible. So it's really difficult to translate and discern whether or not something is allegorical, metaphorical, whether it's referring to something specifically technical or what, and you know, I read a lot about like the specific language and alternate translations uh, associated with that. And I just, I find it so interesting how such different meanings can be drawn from the same words on a page, you know, it's just wild. And then entire cultures are built through that interpretation, that subjective interpretation of a translated material that you know is from X years ago. That's I guess that's that's the the most intriguing part about our, the basis of this entire conversation. These belief systems that drive cultures, drive pop like behaviors of large groups of people, drive just entire mental configurations to where they become a lens through which 
to see all of reality, filter and color every aspect of our perceptions, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat other people, things we tell ourselves we can or can't do morally and ethically, no sex till marriage, no this, no that. And the basis of it, the part I could never wrap my head around is that it's come from an original subjective interpretation that then evolved, evolved over time. Each time it evolves, it's another subjective interpretation, sometimes with socio-political motivations behind the adaptations of the material, obviously. And then now we're here and it's so embedded into culture that it's just, it's really, it's really wild to just think about the depth in which these things play a role in every aspect of our culture here, even today in 2023. Well, my definition of freedom, uh, because uh, of, I think when, when I was a Christian, I did not have, because I believed all of those precepts and, you know, and took them more, you know, far more literally than I should have. But uh, my definition of freedom was uh, only through Jesus Christ and the work of the Savior. But now my definition of freedom is is to be able to do just what you said, to pursue science and to pursue your spirituality, and the twain shall not ever you know interfere with each other. They can uh, they they can follow the same path. And uh, so when I when I could have intellectual freedom and spiritual freedom, and those two could be on the same train and on the same track, that's when I that's when I was able to reinterpret Jesus. I was able to, and and now I, I can honestly say my mind and my my spiritual side is is free, and right. the freedom that I once preached was was no less than a trap. Um, right. You know, you've been like that since I met you. Been like that since I met you, dude. You just seem like such the the freest, most just genuinely curious soul who's always down to have some fun, but also down to have a deep discussion about life in the middle of in the middle of lunch or whatever you don't care when it is it's what it's you know it's always been so fun to share space with you and you you've always encapsulated that energy in a super genuine way that's why that's why like i was saying when we started one of the most interesting people because the story of how you got to this just state of being and you're just like such a kind dude like i said your heart's so huge and you, you you're always seeking to help everybody and th- just the path that led you here is unorthodox in and of itself obviously. And so I just, you know, that's why I'm just like kind of picking your brain today, because I just really am curious about all of the nuances of I'm so fascinated with belief itself. Anybody who's familiar with the work of Dr. Bruce Lipton, and similar researchers discussing the notions of nurture versus nature and beliefs, and perception, and, you know, even Robert Anton Wilson, well, one of my one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Robert Anton Wilson. He said, we say seeing is believing, but actually we're all much better at believing than seeing. In fact, we're seeing what we believe all the time and occasionally seeing what we can't believe, meaning seeing what we like physically seeing what we still won't allow ourselves to believe because of the fact that our belief colors our perception so densely. And I just find it, I think that and, and 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 one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast and, and some other episodes I'm doing as well is like, I think that as a culture and as a society, we are indoctrinated into these belief systems that fundamentally change our human experience and entire existence 
in this incarnation without being taught explicitly about the nature of belief itself and yeah. how and how belief affects perception and how the system in your brain which is called top down signal modulation your neocortex in real time determines what your thalamocortical area your thalamus which is represented by the eye of horus is going to filter out of your sensory data so your beliefs color what your brain ultimately considers to be noise versus signal and it's colored and filtered in real time in a seamless process again it's called top-down signal modulation so the part right behind your forehead that's essentially generating your ability for higher logic and abstract awareness and things like that that's holding your beliefs and constructs is telling the part in a much lower aspect of the brain that is literally just a filter of the sensory data that's coming yeah. in it's coloring that information in real time so your beliefs choose what to even let into your conscious awareness and perception is what I'm is what I'm getting at. And it's so fascinating, because I feel like, as a culture and society, we need to start, at the very least, educating ourselves on the nature, and the ways in which belief puts such a stronghold on us and makes such a difference. That's very in threatening our to the system. That is yeah. very oh, threatening to the system. It's not, I don't see that. Uh, that's, uh, that's threatening to the political system, the, the 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 religious system, and everything. That that is, I don't know where that's going to come from. And I agree completely with your statement. Uh, but that 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 promotes uh, far too much uh, intellectual freedom, and uh, that's not what our country runs on. No doubt. And I mean, it, it's not you know, it's not what some some of the principles or facets of organized religion as a whole run on either. Obviously, and I mean, you know, like I was saying it. It's so hard to know the truth of the ways in which these things like Christianity and other religions have evolved in just the last 2000 years because of the very clear political motivations in some of the doctrine changes when people are conquering empires worth of land and it's a lot easier to, you know, fearfully induce the same belief of the afterlife when you can control I was reading a paper talking about how, how it was perceived to be much easier to control larger groups, larger populations of people when everybody's on the same page about the afterlife. Because back in these days, there was so much less stimulus that, you know, the afterlife and pondering the afterlife was a major aspect of life for a lot of people living as strange as that might sound or at least yeah. a lot more a lot a lot stronger of an aspect of day-to-day -day life than it is in our culture where we have all these things and attention grabbers and everything so it's like if you can get everybody on the same page about the afterlife and then you tell them well we have the real truth you have the fake truth if you don't start believing this real truth i got back here your soul is going to burn forever and then you know that modulates the doctrine and then that bleeds into future generations where we don't necessarily need that level of control is such a strange thing but ultimately i guess i'm just getting back to my main point about understanding the nature of belief itself as being like so important so i wanted to to ask ask you here too you know at what point your first psychedelic experience occurred and kind of what role that played in your journey of building a new paradigm for yourself yeah, that that was that was the fun part, Donnie. That's when things got really interesting. I um 
um, one of my children, I won't say which one, came to me and said, Dad, let's all do LSD as a family. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had been already considering uh, the use of psychedelics. I had already, I'd already turned my uh, uh, turned my interest toward that. And I guess that I had shared that, um, but I didn't push the point. And so anyway, when my child came to me and said, let's do this, we all got together as a family and dropped acid. And, and it was uh, it was a very life-changing experience. It was incredibly eye-opening. I, uh, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with you, obviously, uh, but but it, it it just started me on a on a on a path of of, of open mindedness and and I, a lot of boundaries were removed and that's that's when I really started traveling more and I I really started understanding that this experience that I have that I call life you know this thing that I'm I'm kind of playing around in this body in this tent and I'm playing this role as this human and everything. Um, you know, this particular version is just, is one time. And then, uh, so I, 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 I think I, I, it was, I was able to hear footsteps after, after doing these things and realize, Hey, look, uh, life is more than what I do every day. Life is, uh, and I, and I knew that intellectually, but I think the use of, of psychedelics and, uh, the entheogenic plants, it puts, it puts wheels to that. And then, then you start living like you know that this this life is not going to be lived forever, and you can, and you got to put a lot of punch into it. Yeah, right. so yeah, yeah, and yeah. You know, obviously, back on the topic of belief, psychedelics, in particular ayahuasca and psilocybin, and DMT as well, but mainly ayahuasca and psilocybin, in my experience, have really been my number one educator on the nature of belief like we were talking about like the, in the experience itself and as you were saying like the lsd for you removed boundaries the way that that happens to me or the way that i view that happening is that it's showing you the nature of your belief from like almost an objective standpoint and how yeah. it's how it has an effect on you it shows you this is a you know a computer program that's running in your consciousness and sometimes in your subconscious mind. And this is how it's affecting your path and your trajectory and your actions and the way you interact with other people in ways that are not apparent at baseline neurochemistry. Is that, is that your experience too? And kind of how that helped you reform that? Yeah, I'd say that. And I, and, and, and I, and I'll even go back to say this, that uh, in tying this in with, you know, with, uh, with belief and things like that, I have um, in my through my use of entheogenic plants and and um, uh, there has never been one thing that contradicted um, the ethics and the morals of of scripture in the sense that I have the the plants have always reinforced kindness, tenderness, forgiveness. One of my biggest the biggest eye opening forgiveness lesson. I, I, I ever got was at the hand of Mother Ayahuasca, and uh, all of the men and there had been a there had been just a a, a shit show of of men, of various degrees of moral integrity and things, but they had all been influencers on my life. And while going through this thing, you know the film with the little perforations or the the 
the uh, along the edge that would roll on the track. They were talking like an, an old movie film. Came through, kind of this beautiful little curvature, and somehow or another, the eight to man uh, uh, continuing where they're on all fours and then they, they're eventually standing erect and it goes up to homo sapiens sapien and everything. Mm. All right. So uh, through this film, each of the men that had been, had been influencing, uh, had been big influences in my life. These old men were attached to, to babies, like to, to, to babies. And then as the babies grew up, they were young men. And then eventually, but, but it was always the old man's face, even on the smallest, on all fours crawling form. And I did tears just rolled down my eyes because I realized that all of these men lived a life and they had been children like me and they had, they had experienced all of these things and they, they did not become who they were bad or good out of a vacuum. They had all lived a life. And, uh, and that was a beautiful picture of understanding because understanding will always come before forgiveness. If you do not make an effort to understand, you will harbor hate and resentment. And, um, and that was a beautiful lesson that Mother Ayahuasca gave me. And, it, and, it, and, and, and it's very, very scriptural and very, uh, you know, very Christian in its message and beautiful. Right. So, I mean, considering that, the word communion means or translates roughly to like union with all or union with everything through that Christian context. I mean, would you not consider the psychedelic experience to be sacramental? Oh gosh. Amazing. It's, it, I tell them, you know, I tell the, uh, uh, the naysayer or the, uh, the skeptic that, you know, this is the most, if, if, if you want to use the word religion, it's the most religious thing I've ever done. It's the most spiritual thing I've ever done. There is a, I, I cannot extricate the plants from the spiritual. It, it, they're, uh, they're one and the same. I, I could never think of these things in a recreational sense. They're, they're, right. they're, they're, they're that meaningful. 100%. We have a friend. You and I mutually have a friend who will tell us both before a uh, before a, uh, an experience that uh, I walk up to these things with reverence and my hands shake and and I you know I I've never and you know who I'm referring to we have that he's never lost through years of experience the reverence and um, these things yeah yeah I mean they really it really is just such an incredible thing. And, you know, I often think and, and wonder if, you know, how different our culture may be if psilocybin or a like compound was handed out in mass as communion and in, are integrated into our westernized Christianity. Just like, it's kind of mind blowing, just even brainstorming on how different things would be were that the case, you know, it's just yeah. wild to think about. Yeah, it, it, it would it, it would make the world a better place. <laughs> There's no doubt. Yeah. yeah, There's no doubt, man, 100%. So, man, well, Mike, I think we covered a lot. I appreciate you sharing your story in its entirety. And I think it's such a, you know, like I said, it's such an important thing to kind of run through somebody's journey who's willing to share it of understanding and recognizing a program that is not serving like their highest purpose and then 
despite the pushback for doing so, deciding what framework to choose to find connection with God and connection to that divine spark within us and doing it in the way that resonates with you personally. I think that's such a such a strong journey and obviously very difficult decisions were made to do so. But, um, you know, ever since we met, you know, I was just like, this guy here, he's got it. He's got it, man. So I really, I really appreciate that. I just really appreciate your energy. And, and I'm so glad that you were able to find that transformation and deconstruct that, that system and then go on to, to build your own life, you know, after those tough decisions were made. Yeah, been a long journey. I will say this in closing, Donnie, that I think the, uh, uh, I do a lot of, have a lot of conversation with evangelicals that are, that are coming into this world or they're having their, their barriers removed. Uh, they, they're thinking about it. And, and I always tell them that, you know, you know, if there's something, you know, if there's questions, you, you, um, you, you just haven't, you just haven't voiced them yet. And so what I think this plant church gives them is, is, is it gives them uh, the freedom to say, okay, I can come to you and I can say, okay, this is, this, these are my doubts and they can unload them on me without, and, and, and not only can they unload those doubts, they also have a pathway to a different, to a different life. So there, there's, there's a, there are a lot of evangelicals that are just not, they just don't want to be evangelicals anymore. And, and they don't have to do any other thing, but they don't want to be that. Uh, right. so, but, but some of them choose this path, but I've never seen, this is funny. I've seen evangelicals leave and become mystics, but I've never seen a mystic return and go back to, <laughs> go to, to, to be an evangelical there. there it seems to be a one-way path. It, um, it definitely is a one-way path, hundred percent a one-way path, man. And I, I, I couldn't see it any other way either because for the, the mystic uh, per se, traversing into that realm is making a conscious decision to disempower his own self or spirit and in turn outsource you know various aspects of life and well-being to an external force while sacrificing even the potential of self-empowerment from my yeah. from my mm -hmm. perspective that's one of the main things that orthodox religions that personify the notion of god it's one of their main side effects is the the feeling of lack of power within the self and a helplessness and the need to satisfy something external from them in order to receive blessings or answers to their prayers or whatever. And that is like hard coded into the organizational structures of the beliefs is, is, is that self disempowerment. I think when, when one traverses into, into the world, out of that world and into the different spiritual practices, no matter whether they do it with plant medicines or psychedelics, or they go start studying Zen Buddhism or the Vedic mm -hmm. texts or Hinduism, what's common amongst a lot of these older mystical traditions and, and non-dual traditions is the notion of like Atman is Brahma and you know, like, like you are a facet of God, etc. And that provides a certain type of self-empowerment that when you can really tap into this is what i talk about on a lot of other episodes of the podcast is is like really puts you in the driver's seat of your own life yeah. and every choice you make and every consequence yeah. of those choices you have no one to blame but yourself and yeah. i mean well, you know yeah. then there's then there's other opposite ends of the spectrum and what we might call the mystic or a spiritual path then you know you have someone who takes because there's radicalism in, in any belief system that that I've seen so far. So then you have somebody 
on the other polar end, blaming Mercury retrograde for everything that goes wrong in their life too. And that's not, that that's kind of missing the ball also, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But right. at the end of the day, you know, these, and that's why I'm such a huge fan of syncretism in general, because like I said, in the beginning of this, it doesn't seem like any one system can totally package up the truth. It, it just, I don't think language works that way. I don't think our brains work that way. I think that a huge mechanism of forming understanding mm -hmm. is being able to hear the same thing articulated in a bunch of different ways and that your brain can connect data points in, in a in a dimension that it otherwise has a difficult time or impossible time doing so when it's the same thing said in one way, and you're told to believe it in this way, interpret it in this way, etc. Whereas when you can draw from all of these different cultures and traditions, including Christianity, the Bible has a bunch of great lessons in it, obviously, but when you're when you're allowed to get out of the boundary that is imposed on you. This is not even at first a self-imposed boundary. This is taught to people that this is the boundary. Don't cross it. You'll burn it's in hell system. forever. Yeah. Right. This is mm -hmm. right. So we're not even given the choice to look, if you want to go kind of gather some more information, if this doesn't feel in your soul, like truth, if this doesn't <laughs> resonate with your experience, yeah seek truth where you where you feel that you found truth wouldn't that but the be fucked lovely. up part dude wouldn't it i mean the <laughs> fucked up part that's the only fucked up part that's the only fucked up part is that that's not allowed that's yeah. it like it wouldn't be nearly as fucked up if it was so anyway yeah. but you know I, I just i've personally in my journey found that to be fundamentally the most important thing is combining and drawing parallels from these different traditions giving myself the full freedom to find what is resonant in the core of my being and really feels like truth. And also carefully choosing my truth based on my direct subjective experience and mm -hmm. configuring it in such a way that it gives me a, a positive outlook on life and the world. And that's what cultivates the type of faith that I referenced earlier in this conversation, which is the understanding that all is well and as it should be, it's like I understand that I'm on this journey of evolution and there, yeah. there's there's no one system. Like truth yeah. is also constantly evolving as it pertains it's to one individual system, truth. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not an objective box. It's a very complex set of data interaction points combined with experiences and subjective perception and knowledge attained and what's true today might not be true tomorrow and that's right. okay right and so yeah, like an individualized okay. system of, exactly exactly yeah. and that's just fucking not allowed sometimes in these orthodox yeah. systems and again man i just you know, I, I really appreciate hearing your story because the results of, of that transformation are evident. And again, like, you know, I mean, I appreciate your willingness to to come on a podcast and, and talk about it. Some people wouldn't be willing to do that even, you know, and the the results of, of your journey are just so evident and inspiring. And, you know, the, the only point of this conversation is just to inspire people to empower themselves. And if they're in the type of situation that you're describing that some of the people who you were talking to are, 
just know that like, you know, you have the power to, to redefine your own definition of spirituality, to redefine your own definition of truth. And despite what you're told or indoctrinated with, you always can make the changes necessary to live a more resonant life and, and just kind of expand your worldview in ways that are probably previously unimaginable. So it's just really, really cool journey. Well, thank you, Donnie. I, I, I get, I, I share this story one at a time, you know, I have many opportunities, but I appreciate the, the, the bigger uh, format and, uh, and I hope that, um, that, that it does well. I appreciate your time as well, brother. You're, you're a, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're amazing in, in how you help and how you serve and uh, the kindness that you've shown to the community over the years, the, the generosity. And I'll, I'll point to that specifically um, with your time and, and, and sacrament and materials and things. And yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Mike, thank you for doing this. Thank you everybody for listening and appreciate y'all. Have a good one. Bye. 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 Bye.